Okay, Peter, are you ready to go? Yep. Lovely. Welcome to Brooklyn's Members TV and Podcasts. I'm Steve Clark and I'm delighted to be joined by the TV producer, scriptwriter and author, Peter Grimstow. Good afternoon. Thank you for being with us today, Peter. It's my pleasure. Excellent, thank you. Um, you're still due to be with us here at Brooklyn's on September 17th. But I have to say the odds are pretty slim at the moment. Yes, well, um, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, so what we'd like to do this afternoon is just briefly uh, whet everyone's appetite and talk about your rather excellent book, High Performance. But before we do that, can we learn a little bit more about you, Peter? Yes, well, um, I spent most of my life working in television of one kind or another, mostly on the factual side, but not all. Um, and more recently, a lot more on the history side. Um, but the other bit of my life has been writing, and I, I started out about 15 years ago. Um, I published my first thriller, fiction thriller, called Perfect Night, and um, I did a couple more, um, and then I started helping other people write their books as a ghostwriter, basically. Um, and then a friend of mine who uh, has always, an old, old friend of mine who, uh, he and I have always been into cars. He said, why don't you write a book about cars? And it's sort of one of those blindingly obvious things. But I, I, I thought, well, I knew he wasn't interested in my thriller. So I think I thought I'd try and write a book for him. <laughs> and so that's kind of where the, where, where the idea started. Um, I think you've gone on record, certainly in the book, by saying it was also really about the uh, social history of Britain. Well, I, when, I was, when I was at the BBC, I made a, I was involved in a TV series, two fantastic TV series um, about British social history. One was called All Our Working Lives, which was a, I mean, some of, some of your um, members may remember it. It was a massive 11 part history of British industry. Um, and I was lucky enough to get myself onto the one about the car industry as a researcher. But I also uh, made a film, made a few films about, uh, for a history series about Britain just after the war. And that got me interested in the whole process of how the British car industry got going after the end of the Second World War and, and, and the particular things that happened to it along the way. Mm. Now, I, I've always, you know, when I was making, when I was working on the All Our Working Lives uh, film, it was in the early 80s. And so it was a very do story of kind of decline and fall and doom and gloom. And, and it's always rather bothered me, not, not that that was wrong at the time, but because, you know, for me growing up in the 50s and 60s, yeah, you know, that, that was a golden age. And, and I thought, hang on, you know, we're missing something here. And because the kind of, the, it's almost as if the whole story of the decline of British Leyland had sucked so much energy up that the picture beyond of all the amazing things that happened, mm -hmm. um, it, after the war, um, both both sort of competitively and in terms of engineering innovation, had kind of been overlooked. So mm. that's where the genesis of the book came from. I wanted to kind of right that wrong, as it were. Absolutely. Um, I find it fascinating that we've just marked the end of World War II in Europe yes. on VE Day. And um, I know you go to great lengths in the book to say how the UK motor industry really saved the British economy then? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that's kind of 
it's it's an they were the undersung heroes of that period because if you think about it they were they had no the british motor industry had no background in export at all before the war it, it was you know, a trickle of a trickle of cars mostly to the colonies and they were effectively being told by the government mm. that you have to export 75 percent of your output or you will not get your steel because it was still rationed at that time so they really had to go from a standing start now when you consider it by 1950 britain was the biggest exporter of cars in the world despite the fact that our cars were mostly completely unsuitable for the markets they said they went to because of extremes of temperature long straight roads all the things that traditional british cars didn't like um, what really took off was the sports car what led the charge was the sports car and the sports car that led that charge was actually a fairly ancient in terms of technology mgtc mm. but that really started the story going which really was a uh, pre-war design totally yes and also uh, and largely overlooked and unloved by uh, the people who ran the business i mean both william morris and Leonard Lord had very little time for the whole sports car industry, with with, with some justification because you know all the great all the great car, sports car makers, small sports car makers of the 1930s, uh, you know, Alvis, Lagonda, Aston Martin, so forth. They were all they all struggled. They all struggled. You know they, they made what money they could out of marking up. I mean a big markup on the cars, so they cleared their. They basically cleared their overheads and somehow managed to live for another day or not, as was often the case. And obviously the shiny, the big exception to this was William Lyons, who did the opposite. He, 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 he built his cars and charged as little as he possibly could for them in order to build up scale. Um, but anyway, the MG as a result before the war, as I'm sure a lot of your, a lot of your members know, you know was, was unloved by, by um, Morris and also landlord when he was running run, running uh morris they they had no they had no interest in or appreciation of the sports car because they didn't really see it as a commercial proposition no but it was only after they started shipping them to america a few trickle and that's a whole other story in itself he said, hang on you know these are these cars are really popular hmm. so they really did uh, play the policy export or die well it, it was export or die but it, it, with the most surprising machinery because i think what happened was i mean i won't tell the whole story but um basically um shell cavale who is a and you know a, something of a name because he became the biggest importer of british cars in america he 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 had originally thought he was going to sell motorbikes and he went to see this uh, guy in in new orleans about importing motorbikes from europe and he turned up in an MGTC. And what Cavalli was looking at when he saw the MGTC was a four-wheel motorbike. Yeah, yeah. Where you could sit side by side with whoever you were taking for a ride. And he thought, this is great. And he could instantly see this in the California sunshine. And the rest is history. History. Let's move on to what I think is one of my favorite parts of the book, Peter. That's the post-war era and the cast of engineers, designers that set about changing the course of history, which Enzo Ferrari coined the name Garage Easters. Yes. 
know, some of them didn't even have garages. You know, it was old stable blocks. <laughs> um, I, what, I was really kind of curious. Once I started researching the book, and I'm not a, I didn't have a big knowledge of, of motor racing history. I, I knew more about the, the, the road car industry was I hadn't realized that um, Britain had not won a Grand Prix or British car had won a Grand Prix since the early 20s, uh, Sunbeam. And yet by 1965, we pretty much controlled and owned Grand Prix in terms of technology. We, we had, Britain had completely transformed the shape of the Grand Prix car. And I was sort of like, well, how did this happen? Because the other thing I knew about the British motor industry before the Second World War, with a few honorable exceptions, it was a very technologically risk-averse industry. Um, I mean, things like independent front suspension uh, were, were largely, you know, were, were very unusual. Front-wheel drive, monocoque construction, all the things that were being, you know, were, were being introduced in, the, in Europe. We just weren't really happening in Britain. And yet, so, but, but by the mid-60s, I mean, you know, we had, not only we had Lotus and Cooper, but we also had the Mini and we had the E-Type Jag, all these cars incredibly technologically advanced. Oh. It left, left, the, left their competition behind on that front. So how did this happen? And it was kind of looking at the, the genesis of that. And, and obviously the key players in there are, are um, John Cooper, Colin Chapman and Alec Isagonis. And what did they have in common? Because they're quite different, all quite different guys. They're all rebels. They're all rebels. And in, in a way, it was a bit like, to answer the question, how did it happen? It's a bit like, well, how did rock and roll happen in Britain? Yeah. And I was kind of intrigued by the fact that um, John Cooper and Isagonis first encountered each other at 1946, I think it was, Brighton Speed Trials, yeah. where they each brought their specials. And for me, that was a bit like um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richard meeting up on Dartford Railway Station. You know, it was, it was the beginning. Nothing would ever be the same after that, really. Yeah. But I think what was what was interesting was the way the way in which those. I mean, obviously, Isagenis was somewhat older, but but Cooper and Chapman of a generation. It was just like they were they kind of fitted into that post-war generation. We're not going to do what we, you know what what we were. We're not going to do what we're told to. We're going to do our own thing. And Isagonis had always been like that. I mean, he was so asymmetric. Um, and, and it kind of coincided with, you know, these, these other post-war features. One was the availability of aluminium, um, which was perfect material for building, build, building uh, lightweight racing cars. And also the, um, the number of spare airfields with perimeter roads ready to be turned into racetracks. Yeah. And it was just the confluence of these things, kind of aluminium, airfields, and the attitude of these guys that seemed to came together in, in, in this, cause this marvelous revolution. Mm. I guess they always had the common thing, they wanted to break the rules. They were, they were such rebels. And, yeah. and the interesting thing is when you look into, I don't know a lot about the history of um, uh, Ferrari and Maserati and Alfa Romeo, I mean, wonderful engineers, a lot of them. I mean, Ferrari's not an engineer, but he was a great, you know, it was a great, uh, very good at making things happen. Um, is that they were I mean, technologically wonderful, but not, not revolutionary. No. And just about everything, everything that you can point to lots of things that Isagonis did, that Chapman did, 
that, that, that Cooper did, which are really, really off the wall. Mm. Why, um, why do you think that our part of the world, South East England, proved such a magnet for constructors like Cooper, Brabham, Tyrrell, McLaren, just for example? It's, I mean, it's one of those slightly accidental things. You can, I mean, you could ask why did, why did, you know, why did what happened in Silicon Valley happen in Silicon Valley? And, and there, there, there's an element of accident involved in this. And I mean, obviously Silverstone becoming, you know, becoming the home of the British Grand Prix from 1950 onwards, which had basically just been a desert, was a deserted airfield in 1947. Um, that that kind of I guess sort of functioned as a kind of a, a, as a kind of centre really, mm -hmm. um, and the the fact that Cooper well Cooper was in it, 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 Cooper was where he was because his dad that was where his dad's garage was and his dad's garage was there because of Brooklyn's really I mean he 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 actually like Mike Hawthorne's dad had kind of gravitated there uh, to be near Brooklyn's because that was where. I mean, those guys, those guys were very different from the kind of traditional Brooklyn's fast set of the 30s, where you, you know, if you wouldn't do anything, you had to have money. But um, you know, John Cooper's dad was the mechanic, um, and uh, Hawthorne's dad, you know, brought, came down there for similar reasons. Hmm. Clearly, as you've said there, the uh, pre-war racing set were very well off, or you had to be to get into that sort yeah. of thing. And post-war of the 50s and 60s all of a sudden turned back to being a very glamorous age for motor racing how did that happen well i think the first thing you have to go back to the first bit which is the other thing that happened that was really important in 1945 was the the the, the, the development of the of the 500 formula and that originated with the with the guys at filton and they they wrote they wrote which is a very egalitarian very typically egalitarian post-war document which was the which was the basis of the 500 formula which would get, enable people to get a start in motor racing who would never have been able to get a start in motor racing before the war i mean yeah they could have got into hill times and stuff but you know this was de deliberately designed for the ordinary man with or woman with the right aspirations and the right determination to get a foothold in motor racing you think all of those guys started they all they all started in in the 500 uh, arena chapman yeah he did he he, he did uh, he, he raced oh you know something you know a descendant of the austin seven um which kind of was but there was that bottom they were they, were, they created an entry point and i mean you ask an interesting question how did it get so glamorous by the 60s well in a way i think that the the type of the type what happened to grand prix was that by the the brits going going and getting involved in europe um kind of that that was glamorous you know <laughs> and the brits came you know the the brit success made them more glamorous and their status completely changed in, in europe i mean britain was not not take you know the british the the, the european motor or motoring world did not revere the brits before the war i mean there was bentley yes obviously and you know rolls royce was supposed to be the best car in the world but 
you know, there, there wasn't really much else going, but, but, you know, by the 60s, it was just like, it was, it was again, like the Beatles, like the Stones, it was like rock and roll. You know, they were the, they were the coolest guys mm -hmm. and they were, and, and the, rebe the rebellious street was very obvious. I think, you know, there's, a, there's another part of this story, which is Sterling Moss. Mm -hmm. And I, I've been thinking a lot about Sterling Moss, obviously, since he, since he died. And I was lucky enough to interview him a few times. Um, in fact, one of, the, one, one of the things I got away with when I was working for Channel 4 was an entire night devoted to Sterling Moss. It was in 1998, and actually lumps of it are still on YouTube, and it's well worth a watch. But what I'd say about Moss was that he, he really... In the in the in the fifties, he really kind of looked like the future. You know, Hawthorne and Collins were were they they kind of looked over their shoulders. You know, they were all, all of them great racing drivers. They kind of looked over their shoulders. I mean, Hawthorne with his flat cap and bow tie. You know, he he was like a time warp, really. Um, whereas Moss had this kind of modernity. Uh, you know, teetotal, very organised very disciplined he was a kind of prototype modern sports person and and he he also had this kind of aura around him he you could you could sort of connect him to to james bond to to you know uh, patrick mcgurn <laughs> you know he had that he felt contemporary mm. uh, and, and also as somebody who embraced television um he was a great communicator um mm. And so that the, the, all this conspired to help the, help the sport, help the image of Brit, the, the British image. Then you've got on the other side of that, of course, is we haven't talked to, about Jaguar yet, but obviously, you know, Lyons was just brilliant at not only making his cars look fantastically sexy, but also enabling them to win races. Mm -hmm. It was it was just such a such a class act. Yeah. Probably never to be repeated. Um, well, you never know. Never say never. <laughs> never say never. That's well, I, I say never say never because if you think how bad things were in 1975, 76, you'd be very surprised, you know, to find that 25 years on, so many of the great British names were back in business. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously not necessarily owned by, <laughs> by Brits, but, you know, still yeah, flying. Flags were still being flown. Absolutely. Um, the latter part of the book, you pay tribute to what you call the unsung heroes, uh, oh, yeah. designers of the 50s and 60s, and you include in that um, Terence Conran um, and Mary Kwan. Well, my point is, I think the point I was trying to make there was that Mary Quant and Terence Conrad are, are, you know, are household names, I'd say, certainly within the, within the greater design world. You know, you, you, you think those are people, they're people who change the landscape, or certainly change the interior landscape, or change the landscape and change the style of Britain in the 60s. Well, there's, there's, many, there's many British designers, car designers, who did the same thing. I mean, I think Lyons is, is the leader of that pack. I mean, who else? You know, apart from someone like Conran or Quant, combined being r running running a business with also being the chief stylist. Yeah. You know, the, it is extraordinary to me that William Lyons micromanaged the design of all his all his road cars from the very first SS1 right up to the first XJ6 just before he retired. 
Isn't that incredible? And the yeah. last car, so the, and he, you know, the XJ6 is very, very much his creation. Mm. I'm talking about the style of it. And yet he did that in his mid 60s. I mean, what, what an achievement. So when I think of people like Lyons and also Emerson Gonis, who's designed his cars from the inside out, but certainly ha had a, a lasting look to them, the Mini particularly, um, is the, and obviously the Morris Minor, um, these cars are as much you know, part of, part of the, the modern post-war British landscape as the furniture of Conrad and the, 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 the clothes of the clothes of Quant. So that's really my point that they, they, they deserve to be recognized in a, in a wider context. And the, the, thing I, the thing I wanted to do with, with high performance was, you know, there are so many fantastic books already out there about all the people I've spoken to, spoken about. I mean, Doug Nye's book on Cooper and BRM, the, auto, the, the biography of Alakis Agonis, um, superb books, um, lots of great books about Jaguar. Um, what I wanted to do though was try and write a book that would appeal to a, the, 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 wider, the wider audience as it were. It's the sort of the same trick as I've always been trying to do in television most of my life, which is take a subject and see if I can broaden it without adulterating it. So I wanted to write a book for the people who, are, who we all know, who quite like cars, but maybe don't know that much about them, but like reading, like reading modern history, you know, like reading Dominic Sandbrook or you know, someone like that, great commentators of, of, of modern British history. Absolutely. So to, to write a book that was primarily about the people, and that, that was the goal for me. And obviously, as well as those, those designers that we've just mentioned, there are some other undersung heroes for me, like David Bache of Rover, who designed the, the Rover P5 and P6, um, and several other cars along the way. Great stylist. Uh, the Range Rover, obviously, he had a hand in. Um, these, are, these, these are great icons of our, our landscape. Peter, I've been fascinated with the actual cover of the book. Can you tell us a little bit who designed yeah, it? Yeah, well, not, you know, not a lot of authors, um, I don't know whether you can see it from here, um, not a lot of authors get to choose their covers, um, but I've already been a fan of Tim Lazell, as I'm sure many of your members are, and I, I said, look, this is what I want. Please, can we have this on the cover? You must, you know, you must agree that this is a great, a great picture. In fact, the original one, the the the, the, the Tim's original, there's a kind of background of of the south of France, you know, and and the publisher said, well, could it be a bit more British? <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know what he's going to say about that. But to his great credit, he was saying, yeah, well, fine, we can do that. And so we just just gave it that 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 kind of, um, do you, know, you see it? Just that, yeah, yeah, speeding yeah. background, yeah. and then the, and then the words. Um, it is a very. I'm so happy to have that because the number of people, especially as you know, I'm a first timer. I've not written car books before. You know, I'm a bit of an interloper. There's plenty of people around who've been doing it for years, but that was a great calling card. People look at this. Oh, what's this about? Oh, Tim lays out on the cover. That must be all right. <laughs> um, so that was a a little coup. Absolutely, and a great selling point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, finally, Peter, um, you, you mentioned in the preface to the book that January the 26th, 1964, the London Palladium was <laughs> such a TV inspiration to you. 
Yeah. Why? Well, um, I'm sitting there. I must have been. Uh, I just just close, almost having, almost about to have my ninth birthday, and yeah, we, we all watched Sunday Night at the London Palladium. It was it was you know the Beatles. They'd had the Beatles on just two two months before. And we're all sitting down to watch it, along with, I now know, about 28 million other Brits. And um, there's Tommy Cooper, Cathy uh, Kirby, and a, a small red and white car. <laughs> On the London Palladium is, the, is, is, is the, the Mini Cooper that's just won the Monte Carlo Rally. Now, how cool is that? With, yeah. with Paddy Hopkirk and Henry Lynn standing, standing beside it, looking slightly kind of what, <laughs> what just happened. Yeah. And I was just like, hey, you know, the car is the star. Mm. The car is a star. And then, of course, later that year, Goldfinger comes out. <laughs> you know, here's a, another car, which is a, a, a celebrity in its own right. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Yeah. We, we created these cars that became, became celebrities in their own right. And you can say the same of the, the, of the E-Type Jack. And uh, all three iconic cars. Yeah. Peter, it's been a delight to talk to you this afternoon. Thank you. I could talk for a couple more hours, but we'll spoil it for everyone else when they see you in person. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been Take a pleasure. Care. And I hope to see you very soon. Peter Excellent. Grimstar, thank you very much indeed, sir. Thank you. Cheers.